welcome to another episode of our NCLEX review series. In this podcast, we continue to bring you valuable materials to help you prepare for your exam. Enjoy. When you are suctioning, when you are inserting the, the suction catheter, do you suction on the way down? Do you suction on the way up? And the deal is you suction for no more than 10, 10 or less seconds each time. And you twist that catheter coming out. Remember, it's a sterile procedure. That's why I say if you have to pass the catheter more than one time, you don't auscultate until you're done. All right? Because you don't, you mean, you've got sterile gloves on. If you pass the catheter suction and then you listen with your stethoscope, you've just contaminated your glove. Right? So you listen until when you're done with all your suctioning attempts. You do not suction in a, for a total of more than 30 seconds. So if each suction attempt is 10 seconds, then you can only suction for, no more, for three times. Okay? No more than 30 seconds. All right. Let's talk about mechanical ventilations while we're on the subject of all of this marvelous stuff. Okay. Somebody who's on a, a, a respirator, a mechanical ventilator, you need to assess that person's respiratory status frequently. Remember, he can't tell you whether he's short of breath or not. And you essentially may not be able to tell because if he's being assisted totally by the ventilator, you don't know. Okay, so it's your job to assess that respiratory status. Blood gas values need to be monitored frequently because he's on a ventilator. And you need to know, is he acidotic, is he alkalotic, do we have to adjust the settings? Okay, it's your job as a nurse to do all of this monitoring. I mean, if he's alkalotic, you've got to tell the doctor so that he can help, you know, he can give you the orders whether to up the IMV, lower it, to change the FiO2. I mean, this is something that is your job as a nurse. You gather the information and you pass it on to the doctor. You cannot change the IMV on your own, but you, you know, you need to tell the doctor. It's your job to pass the information on. You've got to also make sure that he has adequate nutrition and fluid therapy. Remember yesterday we talked about enteral nutrition. And I said people who are critically ill, you will see sometimes them being on some form of enteral nutrition. Well, if they're on a mechanical ventilator for extended periods of time, you're going to see them getting some form of enteral nutrition. Okay? Um, you've also got to remember... And this is, this is Grace's rule of thumb, okay? You've, it's not just mine. I think it's every single nurse in the world. You've got to remember that if a person is on a mechanical ventilator, whenever you're in doubt, bag him with 100% oxygen. When you are in doubt, bag him with 100% oxygen. In other words, alarm goes off, you go to check, you cannot figure out what in the world is going on. You know what? Bag him. Take that bag valve mask, put it on, you know, the trach, or the, the ET tube, and just give him 100% oxygen. It's never going to hurt him. Okay, so whenever you're in doubt, go ahead and do that. All right, let's talk about high-pressure alarms and low-pressure alarms. High-pressure alarms, what does that mean? It means that the machine is meeting some obstruction. It's having some difficulty uh, administering the oxygen that it, wants to, or that it wants to administer. So it's meeting a resistance, so it has to use a lot of pressure, okay, to deliver it. So a high-pressure alarm generally means there's some form of obstruction, whether it's partial or complete. When you hear the high-pressure alarm going off, when you, okay, what, here's what you've got to do. Number one, look at the patient. 
because maybe he's full. In other words, maybe he's got lots of secretions. Okay, so auscultate the patient. Okay, look at the patient. Maybe he's full. The other thing you want to do is to look at that corrugated tubing, you know, that connects the, the, the machine, that humidifies the, uh, the, the air that goes in. Look at that corrugated tubing because that could be full of water. And if that's full of water, you just dump the water out, and that could take care of that. So generally, a high-pressure alarm means there's a partial or full obstruction. So you want to check the corrugated tubing, and you check the patient. He could be full, or he could be doing one of these gagging numbers. Have you ever seen that? Where he's actually bucking the placement of the tube, so he's gagging. All right, And that in itself can cause difficulty for the machine, because when you gag, you, you um, constrict your muscles here, okay? And that could be causing difficulty to the machine to give, to administer the oxygen that uh, it wants to deliver, okay? A low pressure alarm is pretty simple. A low pressure alarm means it's too easy. The machine is finding it way too easy to administer the oxygen. Usually with a low pressure alarm, there's some form of leak or some form of disconnection. Low pressure alarm, first thing you do is check all your connections, make sure it's hooked up to the patient, make sure all the connections are hooked up. Low pressure alarm, generally low, um, generally a leak or there's some form of disconnection. Okay? An apnea alarm. An apnea alarm is when there's a very low respiratory rate. And that occur, apnea alarms or periods of apnea usually occur when you're attempting to wean a patient off the ventilator. Okay? Any questions so far? Oxygen alarm simply means that you're, on the, you're not getting enough oxygen. We've done this. All right, let's talk about some respiratory medications. We'll talk about Theophylline, we'll talk about Allupan, and I was asked a question yesterday off the air, offline. I was asked a question, which one do you give first, you know, with the MDI inhaler? Do you give the anti-inflammatory first, or do you give the actual medication first, the beta blocker first? Well, what's the answer to that one? You give the anti-inflammatory first, obviously, because what do you want to do? Yeah, you want to open up the passageway so that the beta blocker can get in. Okay? So the anti-inflammatory can be something as simple as um, a steroid. Okay. All right. Theophylline is that tried and true drug. Theophylline is the name of the drug that you give PO. Aminophylline is the name of the drug that you give IV. Same drug, just that Theophylline is PO, Aminophylline is IV. Theophylline, which is a xanthine derivative along with aminophylline, these xanthine derivatives relax smooth muscles of the bronchi. Okay, you can give this theophylline either by mouth or by rectum, but you need to monitor levels. We are tending to get away from theophylline because it's a troublesome drug, because you've got to monitor levels, and also because of the side effects of theophylline. The side effects of theophylline include things like nausea and vomiting, rapid heart rate, anxiety. I remember my daughter was five years old, and she was a, uh, she's a asthma, diagnosed with asthmatic bronchitis, and they put her on theophylline. And I remember her coming to me one day, and she looked at me with big old tears in her eyes, and she said, Mommy, my heart hurts. Okay, and that was because she had such severe palpitations from the theophylline. It's a difficult drug to manage because you've got to keep drawing levels on it okay, to make sure that it's within therapeutic range. And the therapeutic range is between 10 and 20. I think it's nanograms or something like that per deciliter. But um, you've got to monitor theophylline. Side effects, like, like I said, tachycardia, nausea, vomiting. 
That was another thing she used to do, is throw up all over the place. Okay. Allupent is another drug, and Allupent actually relieves the bronchospasm, and it's given by mouth, or it can be given through an MDI, a multi-dose inhaler. Provental. Provental relaxes the smooth muscles of the tracheobronchial tree. So you give your provental, and then you give your allupent. We're moving right along, folks. We're going to do the GI system now. There are six tests that we're going to cover. Okay, six tests and six definitions. Okay, let's talk about the endoscopy. Okay, and the endoscopy is also known as the esophago gastro duodenoscopy, which is a mouthful, yes. But I like the long one. You know why? It's also known as the EGD. The reason I like it is because it tells you exactly where you're going and exactly what you're looking at. Yes? Esophago, so you're looking at the esophagus. Gastro, you're looking at the stomach. Duodenoscopy, you're looking at the duodenum. Wow, voila, it's right there for you. Yes, isn't that wonderful? So the purpose of this EGD is to observe and to see if there are any ulcers or inflammations or tumors in the esophagus, in the gastric cavity, or in the duodenum. Now, how nice is that? Well, your nursing intervention, what is it? What is your responsibility as a, nursing, as a nurse? Your responsibility as a nurse is to understand what, what this procedure is. You're not doing it, so you're not getting the consent, need a consent for this. You're not performing the procedure, so you don't get the consent ever, right? You just witness it. We're not asking you to know the procedure so you can perform it. We're asking you to know the procedure so that you know how to teach the patient and how, what to tell the patient in terms of problems afterwards. So you want to tell him he has to be NPO for at least six to eight hours before. And why is that? We're going in to look at the stomach and the intestines. If he eats, we're not going to be able to see the stomach. We're going to see lots of food, lots of chyme, actually. All right? So NPO is six to eight hours before. Tell him that after the test is done, okay, they're gonna, we're going to numb his throat. Yes, we'll help him. We will numb his throat. So after the test is done, he will not be able to eat or drink immediately, but we do have to check for a gag reflex to return. Don't you love that little gag reflex thing? Yeah, we'll check for his gag reflex to return. And if you think about what I said, every time I have said that there's a procedure done, you know, whether, whether it's an out, if it's an outpatient procedure and you're going down the throat, you need to check for gag reflex afterwards. Check for your gag reflex afterwards. Check for any dysphagia, difficulty swallowing. Check for any bleeding because those are complications that could arise. And it's up to the doctor to tell them this is what might happen. Okay? It's very interesting. Have you ever sat in and listened to a doctor describe a procedure? We may puncture your lung. We may puncture your liver. We may kill you, but sign right here, please. <laughs> you know? We do that. <laughs> The other thing also you can tell him is that if he does have a sore throat, which he probably will have, once his gag reflex returns, we will be giving him warm saline gargles. We do, uh, we do avoid giving uh, um, narcotics for this procedure because it does go away very quickly, the pain. Okay, the upper GI series is the barium swallow. This is the second procedure we're going to talk about. The barium swallow is that wonderful stuff that you swallow and you drink, and it, you want, you know, he drinks it under fluoroscopy, so you have to take him to a special procedures room. He's given this barium 
uh, to swallow and he drinks it and they just observe it as it goes down. Okay, the purpose of a barium swallow is to determine and to see if there are any abnormal structures, um, any abnormalities in the stomach, and also to observe the emptying time of the stomach. Another thing we can look for is an ulcer. It may be possible that you can see an ulcer. Your nursing care, nothing by mouth after midnight. Why? We want that stomach to be empty because when he swallows that barium, we want to see the full outline, the full contour of that gastric cavity. If he's got food in it, then guess what? You're not going to see the full contour, right? So NPO after midnight. Tell him he's going to drink this very delicious, yummy solution of barium. And yes, you lied. And you can tell him afterwards, I lied, sorry. It's really awful tasting, but it's getting better now. I mean, years ago it was very chalky. Okay, now it's not quite as chalky, but it's still nasty. He will be drinking this aqueous suspension of barium. You also want to tell him preoperatively and then remind him postoperatively that when he goes to the bathroom, his first, you want to see it. In other words, do not flush the toilet, let me see it. Okay, if by any chance he does flush the toilet, what can you do? Ask him, what color was your stool? If it was white, you go, oh, good. That means he's passing the barium out. It's really, really important that you do this because if you do not observe, if he doesn't pass out that barium and it stays within him, barium turns into rock solid. Yeah, stone. Yep. So if you don't ensure that the barium comes out, he will end up with a rock in his intestine. And that will not be nice. The lower GI series, the barium enema. Again, anytime we're doing any of these procedures, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? For fun? No, we're not doing this for grins. We're doing this because we want to see if there are any abnormalities. If you think about the barium enema, it means we're going up the colon, right? So if we're going up the colon, then what are we looking for? We're looking for any abnormalities within the colon, within the cecum, and possibly the appendix. So it's the lower GI tract. So it's the large intestine we're looking at. You see, if you, you, can, you can rationalize this out if you think of it that way. It's the lower GI series. So you know your anatomy is that there's a colon, the cecum and the colon, right? And right by that ileocecal valve is where the appendix is. So you know you're looking at the colon, the cecum, and the appendix. Do you see? That's why I said it's important that you understand the anatomy. So what are your objectives? What are your nursing objectives if, a, if you're taking care of a patient with a lower GI series? Well, you're going to give laxatives, okay? This is before. You're going to give laxatives and soapsud enemas until clear. So you will give him this wonderful thing. Usually they love to give him this, this wonderful thing called go lightly that does not go lightly at all. <laughs> Because you are in that bathroom, I'm, let me tell you, okay, you are in that bathroom. Anyone of you ever taken Go Lightly? Has anyone ever taken, oh, there you go. They say, yes, you're right. Oof. It's a fate worse than death. But it does not go lightly. You sit in the bathroom, and when you think there is nothing more to come out of your rectum, bingo, bingo there you go, there's more. And then, on top of this Go Lightly that we give, we also give you soap suds enema, and it's usually what, 2,000 cc's? Never mind the fleet's enema. We're not going to do this baby stuff now. 
We're doing 2,000 cc's soap suds enema, and we are getting you so clean, you're going to be clean from your throat all the way down to your rectum, and you will squeak when you walk. That's how clean you will be. Okay? We got to do this. Why? Because we want to make sure. We want to be looking. We want to see that there are no abnormalities. He also has to be NPO after midnight. And this person, you definitely also got to check stools afterwards. Again, you want to make sure he's passing out that barium. The sigmoidoscopy. Okay, the sigmoid colon, that's still lower GI. Okay, with, this, with the sigmoidoscopy, we want to identify any inflammations or lesions. You can also see there's any cancerous lesions there. Nursing care, well, same thing before, the bowel prep, right? The laxative, the soap suds enema. You also want to tell him, tell him that during the sigmoidoscopy, actually it's the same with the enema, with any enema, whether it's a soap suds enema, barium enema, whatever. You also want to tell him that during the procedure, he may feel like he has to defecate. But tell him, trust me, you are so clean, there is nothing in there for you to defecate. You just feel like you got to. Okay. So there's the urge to defecate once he puts the, the scope in, or the enema tip, right? Or when they start infusing the enema, how many of you guys have given an enema to a patient? Okay, haven't patients said, oh, I gotta go, I gotta go, I can't hold it, I gotta go. Right? Right in the, just as you start, the urge to defecate immediately arises. And the urge to defecate occurs because you've suddenly filled that rectal vault. That's where we get our normal urge to defecate. When that rectal vault is full, we gotta go. That's where it is, okay? After the sigmoidoscopy, you need to assess him carefully for any bowel perforation. So what does that mean? It means auscultate those bowel sounds. It means if he complains of pain, you need to tell the doctor because bowel perforation could certainly occur. You want to check his vital signs, okay? All those things you need to do. All right, number five. Remember, we're going to do six. This is number five. Number five is when you do, do collect, have to collect stools for ova and parasites. The purpose of this stools for ova and parasites is to rule out or to confirm the presence or absence of intestinal parasites. Now, usually the doctor says ONP times three. Now, it's the same thing. It's three consecutive bowel movements on three consecutive days, not three in the same day. Okay, so three consecutive, and, and you know what some people have done, and I saw this too, I mean, we, we had this patient that needed an OMP times three, and we waited, and we waited, and we waited, I mean, this person only went to the bathroom, you know, maybe twice, had a bowel movement, maybe twice a week, so he finally had a bowel movement, and you know what the nurse did, all good intentions, all good intentions, went in and got three little containers and got three samples, and said, here we go, we got three, doesn't work like that. So, it's three consecutive days, three separate bowel movements, okay? You want to keep the sample warm and urine-free. Good luck. For NCLEX, though, urine-free, okay? You want to keep it warm and urine-free. You can refrigerate if necessary, if you need to. In other words, you can't run it to the lab right away. You can refrigerate. But the ideal is to keep it warm and urine-free, okay? Now, the question I get asked a lot is, okay, three stools on three consecutive days, but your patient doesn't go to the bathroom every day. So what do you do then? Well, it means 
three, if he goes every other day, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, then you collect it on Monday, you collect it on Wednesday, and you collect it on Friday. Those are three consecutive days of bowel movement. If he goes twice a week, he goes on Monday maybe, and then the next time he goes will be on Thursday. So you collect one on Monday, one on Thursday, and one the very next time that he goes, whenever that is. So those are your three consecutive days. You want to tell him that while we're waiting to collect over and stools for ovum parasites, if he's on any antibiotic therapy, and you will see ABT abbreviation, antibiotic therapy, if he is on any antibiotic therapy, he needs to stop that antibiotic treatment seven to ten days before because the antibiotic doesn't really kill the parasites, but what happens is that the parasite goes into hiding. Okay, it goes into hiding with the antibiotic treatment. And you want to tell him, if he takes any mineral oil or Pepto-Bismol, which is bismuth, you know, bismuth is um, Pepto-Bismol, um, not to take it. And please don't schedule any barium enemas right before the stool, uh, right before collecting the ovum parasites, the stool for ovum parasites. Okay, because that throws all the, the readings off. All right, the last thing that we're going to do is that hemocult, which we talked about already. This is the first test that we do, isn't it? And the purpose of this guaiac or the hemocult is to detect a GI bleed and maybe it's a po maybe a possible early diagnosis of colorectal cancer. What is your nursing role in this thing? Well, your nursing role is can you do this? Can you collect a hemocult? You bet. You just put a glove on, go into the rectum, get a smear and smear it on the hemocult card. You want to ask him though. You know, sometimes you get a positive, it turns blue when you put the developer and that's a positive. You want to ask him though, gee, have you taken any iron, you know, or any Pepto-Bismol? Have you taken any, are you taking vitamin C? Are you on any steroids? Okay, um, find out those things. Find out if he's eaten a lot of liver or a lot of beets or horseradish or red meat in the last few days. Maybe a false positive. Remember, hemocult is not definitive. It's your primary test. And it gives you an indication of where to go from there if it's positive. All right, some common GI problems. Diverticulitis, diverticulosis, right, all those things. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. We're going to talk about hernias, esophageal hernias, inguinal hernias. Okay, these things are more and more common today. Esophageal and inguinal hernias, do you know that? We're seeing more and more today. And you know why that is, folks? It's called the obesity factor in the United States. There are more obese people in the United States now. When you're obese, you run the risk of esophageal and inguinal hernias. We're going to talk about peptic ulcers, dumping syndrome, and the B12 deficiency, which we really already covered. But we're going to tie in B12 deficiency into dumping syndrome and gastric surgery now. Okay. First one, esophageal hernia, and this is my hernia. I mean, no, it's not my hernia, but it's the hernia that's a picture of the hernia. This is my hernia, okay? And he, he is an esophageal hernia. And the esophageal hernia is when part of the stomach protrudes through the diaphragm. Okay. What you've got to remember is when this happens, this guy's going to have heartburn, he's going to have pain, and he's going to have dysphagia, or difficulty swallowing, okay? Some of the complications of an esophageal hernia are the same as with an inguinal hernia or any form of hernia, okay? 
when you have a patient with a hernia, your nursing responsibility is, is as follows. You need to ask him, does it reduce? Or you need to find out yourself if it reduces. In other words, when you push it, does it go back? Okay, so does it reduce or does it stay? That's number one. Number two, are there bowel sounds? When you auscultate that hernia, can you hear bowel sounds? If you can hear bowel sounds, and certainly it is definitely part of the intestine protruding, but that is almost a good sign because it means it's not strangulated or incarcerated. If you don't hear bowel sounds, you're in trouble, he's in trouble, but he's also going to tell you he's in pain because an incarcerated or a strangulated hernia is extremely painful. So those are part of your nursing responsibilities. And of course, document what you found. If you didn't write it, you didn't do it. An inguinal hernia is usually a lump in the groin, and it usually occurs with some kind of strain or coughing or heavy lifting. Again, if it's strangulated, you're going to have a lot of pain. How do we treat hernias? Well, we, there's a procedure called herniography. And that's a repair of the hernia. My husband had one. Yep. So you have a repair of the hernia. It gets pushed back. You put a graft over it, you know, the, the abdominal wall. You push the hernia back. What you got, and it's, very, it's painful afterwards, it really is. What you want to tell people that after they have the repair, they are to avoid coughing and straining. So if they're going to avoid coughing and straining, what should you make sure that they have? cough syrup on hand, right, to stop the coughing and straining, to stop the coughing anyway. The straining, and straining what? Stool softeners, because you don't want them to strain, yes? No heavy lifting for six weeks at least, and limit driving and stairs, because you don't know how many of your abdominal muscles you utilize when you drive until you've had abdominal surgery. And then you go to step on the gas and you go, oh my God, it's tremendous pain. Ask any woman who's had a C-section, they will tell you <laughs> how much pain that is. And to avoid stairs. Okay. Heavy lifting, meaning more than, now that's up to the doctor, but generally it's no more, more than 10 pounds is a no-no. Some doctors will say five, depending on the extent. All right, peptic ulcer. Well, a peptic ulcer is a lesion in the mucosa of the lower esophagus of the stomach or the pylorus or the duodenum. So a peptic ulcer essentially is an ulcer somewhere in your GI tract. It is a result of an increase in the concentration or activity of the acid in your stomach or a decrease in the normal resistance of your mucosa. Okay, let me try to put that in plain English for you. I know you would love that. Um, your gastric cavity is acidic. The acid that sits in your gastric cavity is something called hydrochloric acid. Very, very, very acidic. Okay, it's about, it can drop to as low as 1.5 in pH. It generally sits around 3, 4, something like that. Okay. What happens is that the mucosa of your stomach is very, very, very strong. It has to be in order to put up with that much uh, acid, that higher concentration of acid. Well, with a peptic ulcer, something happens. Either you increase the production of your acid, uh, it becomes more acidic than it normally is, or something happens to the integrity of the mucosal wall, 
and that deteriorates. Either way, it causes an actual erosion of the wall of your gastric cavity. It can also cause an ero erosion of your esophagus right there, the cardiac sphincter, where, uh, where the esophagus connects with the stomach. So either way, it doesn't matter. What we do know is that because of something, okay, whether it's an increase in the production of the acid or whether it's a decrease in the, re in the resistance of the mucosa, you now have a lesion because the acid is now able to eat through part of the gastric cavity wall, okay? What do you do? How do you treat a peptic ulcer? Well, in the good old days, it used to be they would tell you milk, milk, and more milk. Yes, right? Milk and milk and milk and milk and milk. Well, my husband had ulcers. They put him on milk and milk years ago, milk and milk and milk and milk. He gained 30 pounds. Because they used to tell him, drink cream. Pure cream. You know how fatty that is? Because that will line your stomach. He gained 30 pounds and still is having trouble losing it. But I mean, that's what they told him to do. Well, today, what we tell our patients generally is, is that yes, certainly rest. And yes, certainly be careful of what you eat. But each patient's tolerance level is different. So for example, you may be able to eat noodles um, with soya sauce and hoisin sauce, and that's wonderful, but she eats it and she has a peptic ulcer, so she may have severe reactions. So essentially what we tell our patients is that you eat what you can tolerate. Obviously, we're going to advise them to avoid chili peppers, yes, and high spices, but essentially eat what you can tolerate. That's the going trend right now, and actually that is an NCLEX question. Okay, you need to you advise the patient to eat what they can tolerate. Medications, we're going to ask them to take medications. Okay, you've got the basic medications of Amphigel and Milk of Mag. Yes, those basic antacids. We're also going to give things like Tagamet and Zantac, and these are what we call H2 antagonists. Now, an H2 antagonist, H2 stands for histamine 2. These are receptor sites that live in your stomach. Okay, every time you have an allergic reaction, when an ant bites you or when a mosquito bites you, you know how the area right around the mosquito bite turns red? Okay, that's a direct result of histamines that respond and it causes inflammation. Well, what we want to do here in your stomach is to stop the histamines from being formed because it causes an inflammation, makes it red and irritable, and makes, causes pain. So we give H2 antagonists to stop those H2 from the histamine from being produced. So your stomach doesn't get inflamed and painful. So that's why we give Tagamet and Zantac. We give anticholinergics like probanthine and robinol, and why? What does that do? It diminishes secretions, right? So we don't want as much acid to be produced, so that's why we give that. We give anti-secretories like Prilosec and Prevacid. And for the same reason, we want to stop too much uh, production. And then we give Caraphate. Remember yesterday we talked about Caraphate or Sucrophate and, and um, Milk of Mag or Mylanta? Remember that? Okay, which one do we give first? We give the Caraphate first, right, okay. And we'll also give antimicrobials because we want to prevent any complications of a possible infection. 
If the surgery is needed for peptic ulcer, you're going to see, you may see two major complications. Number one is a dumping syndrome, and number two is a B12 deficiency. And with dumping syndrome, basically what happens is severe palpitations and sweating, and blood pressure may drop, okay, and he just feels really dizzy. Because what happens with a dumping syndrome is that everything that go, it, it goes into your stomach dumps right away, immediately, into your intestine. Now, usually it goes in a progressive, slow, progressive fashion, but with dumping syndrome, which is a complication after gastric surgery, you might see this. Okay, there is the question in NCLEX that talks about a Bill Roth II procedure. Well, the Bill Roth one, and everybody panics because they go, Bill Roth I, Bill Roth II, exactly what is it? It doesn't matter, folks. All, all you need to know is that the Bill Roth I and the Bill Roth II are gastric surgeries. It means that they, they, I, they cut out part of your stomach and anastomose the intestine to it. Okay, so when you remove part of the gastric cavity, you are removing also the parietal cells that contain your intrinsic factor. And what does your intrinsic factor do? It absorbs B12. So if you're going to start taking and removing these parietal cells that produce intrinsic factor, guess what you've just done? You may have fixed his peptic ulcer, but now you've just given him a B12 deficiency. And if that happens and he gets pernicious anemia, guess what? That person's going to have to be on B2, B12 shots for the rest of their life. Okay. Dumping syndrome, as I said to you, is caused by the rapid emptying of these contents. How can we avoid dumping syndrome? Well, what we want to tell them to do is to avoid eating a lot of high-carbohydrate foods at me and lots of fluids at mealtimes. We don't want him to be... Actually, laying down is good after meals. Sitting up is not good, so we don't want him to be sitting up you know, after mealtimes. We don't want him to be drinking a lot of fluid um, around his mealtimes also. Okay, we want to give and tell him to eat slowly. That also helps as well. All right. Diverticulosis. Diverticulosis is where you have multiple diverticula. A diverticula, one diverticula is an outpouching of the intestine. And so if you think about your intestine, it's got all these rugae, right? All these lovely little rugae, and then all of a sudden you've got an outpouching. Well, when you have an outpouching like that, the chances are that if you eat nuts and berries and, you know, all those wonderful things, a nut or a berry may get caught in one of those pouches, and that can cause excruciating pain along with a possible infection. So people with diverticulosis or diverticulitis, you want to tell them to avoid nuts and berries. Okay, these people are already going to be complaining of severe cramp-like pain and lots of flatus, and we all know what flatus is. Yes? Good. We all know, don't anyone raise their hands and tell me they don't know what it is. Please. Nausea, you'll see that. You will have, an, they will have irregular bowel patterns, and sometimes some of them will actually pass out blood or pus. Yeah, I know. And fever. Okay, so diverticulitis, diverticulosis is pretty much the same signs and symptoms. Diverticulitis is an inflammation of a diverticula, though. A diverticula is an outpouching. Diverticulitis is the inflammation of that outpouch. So you want to avoid, as I said, nuts and berries. You know, the treatment and the diet is exactly the same. All right, ulcerative colitis. This is probably 
I, I can think of, a, a, this is a fate worse than death. It's an ascending inflammatory disease of the colon and the rectum. So it starts in the colon and the rectum and it's, it, it goes up. It goes up your intestines. It's extremely painful. These people are passing 15 to 20 watery, very mucousy, bloody stools a day. They are extremely thin. They've lost a lot of weight. Okay, why? Because nothing stays in the intestine for them to absorb. They cannot absorb any nutrients. They've got a fever because remember, with any inflammatory process, you've got a fever, right? It is warm. It is hot. So they've got a fever. They've also got severe abdominal pain. So how do we treat ulcerative colitis? Well, we, because of the weight loss, we say please eat a lot of high-protein, high-calorie foods, low roughage, because why? You don't, they don't need roughage, trust me. 15 to 20 stools a day, they certainly don't need roughage, okay? <laughs> they need to retain as much as they possibly can. Lots of psychological support because of the pain, because of the discomfort, and because also they may very well end up with a colostomy. So, you know, it's really important. They will get steroids. Now, remember how we talk about steroids and we think, well, 5 milligrams, 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams, and then you taper, right? These people with ulcerative colitis can be on as much as 60 milligrams BID for the rest of their lives. Yes. So imagine the mood swings that they're going to be, on, uh, yeah? going to be experiencing. Certainly. They're going to have severe mood swings because of this high dosage of steroids that they're going to be taking. Antibiotic treatment, my gosh, let me tell you, Keflex is their best friend. Yes, because any time and every time they have just a little bit of something, they're, they're put immediately on an antibiotic. They'll give sulfonamides, which also, you know, which is an antibiotic with severe attacks. So you're going to see very aggressive treatment with ulcerative colitis. You're also going to see aggressive treatment with Crohn's disease. With Crohn's disease, you have cramping after meals. You've got, again, the weight loss. You've got the anemia. You've got chronic diarrhea also, right? Same as with ulcerative colitis. You've got a temperature. Okay, with Crohn's disease, so what you've got to watch for is a possible per perforation of the intestine. Actually, you also got to watch that with ulcerative colitis. It's a possibility of a perforation of the intestine because, remember, it's an ulcer. Okay, so you've got to watch for that as well. How do we treat Crohn's? Well, usually an ileostomy, okay? And we're going to talk about ileostomies and colostomies in a little bit. Again, low-residue diet. They do not need a high-residue diet because they're also going to the bathroom very frequently. A bland diet, lots of iron, lots of vitamins, lots of high-caloric and high-protein foods. They also will get sulfonamides. They also will get anti-inflammatory drugs, but they will get things like steroids as well. You will not see them taking stuff like uh, NSAIDs because NSAIDs is irritating to the stomach, so you don't want to do that. You know what NSAIDs are, right? Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. They will get antidiarrheals. And so actually will ulcerative, uh, people with ulcerative colitis. But they get the granddaddy. They get things like Lomotil. You know, forget the other stuff. They get the granddaddy of antidiarrheals. They'll get anticholinergics, like atropine. And atropine actually also works as an antidiarrheal. All right, what is an ileostomy? I just said that with 
Crohn's, you might see an ileostomy. With ulcerative colitis, you may see a colostomy. Well, an ileostomy is when you take a portion of the ileum and you bring it through the abdominal wall. With an ileostomy, it involves the removal of the colon and the rectum. So that means, therefore, it's permanent. Yes? Because once you remove the colon and the rectum, that's not, you, you can't go back. All right? So ileostomy is permanent. Preoperatively, we're going to give neomycin enemas because we want to sterilize the bowel. We'll give blood and fluid and protein replacements as well. Okay, because we want to build the person up for the surgery. Remember, they've already lost a lot of weight. Postoperatively, it's routine. And what are we going to do? Bowel sounds, bowel sounds, and bowel sounds, yes? And document your bowel sounds, all four quadrants. What about colostomies? Well, a colostomy is when you bring a portion of the colon through the abdominal wall. And you've got two kinds of, and the preoperatively, it's the same. You've got two kinds of um, uh, colostomies. And we'll cover that in a second. Let's talk about, uh, we did that stomach care. Okay, let's talk about a colostomy and an ileostomy postoperatively. Postoperatively, what you've got to do is what? Note the first flatus. And how do you note the first flatus? You look at the bag and see if it's inflated. If it's inflated, then he just passed gas. Right? Isn't gas just what it is? Air? So you look at the bag. If it's inflated, then he just passed gas. You note the time. Okay? The time that you observed it. When a person has an ileostomy or a colostomy, there are certain diets that we want to advise them on, okay? There are some odor-causing foods, things like cheese or garlic or eggs or fish, asparagus, onions, heavy spices. These all cause odor. Now, what NCLEX does is that they're going to ask you, the focus of the question will be your patient has a colostomy and is concerned because his flatus is extremely odorous, so which of the following foods would you, ask of, would you uh, advise him to avoid? Then you would pick from the list of odor-causing foods. If, however, they said, you know, he's got a lot of flatus, all right, and he wants to avoid the flatus portion, then you go from the list of gas-forming foods. Okay, and gas-forming foods include, include everything from the cabbage family. Here is my happy broccoli. Onions, peas, corn, radishes, string beans, okay? Beer and champagne, folks, those also cause gas. If, however, they say, you know, that he needs, to, he wants to take, uh, he's got too much diarrhea, and could he, what kind of foods could he take that would harden up the stool, then you give him this list, okay? Hard-boiled eggs, cheese, sugar, liver, yuck, rice, bananas, Applesauce, toast, gelatin, concentrated broth, meat, chocolate. Chocolate's con constipating. Did you all know that? Now you do. So you know some of these things cross the list, right? They cross over from one list to the other. It depends on the focus of the question, is guess, I guess what I'm trying to get to. All right, you have a patient who had a stoma put in. What is your nursing responsibility? Well... Immediately post-op, you've got to check the stoma height. You've got to check the stoma color, right? You, you also have to check and make sure that um, the bag is applied properly because there will be a bag. 
you want to inspect everything. You have to understand that, that you're going to teach the patient that this bag needs to be changed every five to seven days. You also need to know that obviously if it's leaking, you're going to change it immediately, right? You're not going to wait. The bag, the stoma bag, the colostomy or the ileostomy bag needs to be emptied every four to six hours. Don't let it sit for longer than that. Don't, because then you're going to have a backup of stool, and uh, if it hits the skin, that's not going to be a good thing. The area around the stoma, what should you use to wash it with? Soap and water is fine. It's not a sterile technique. Okay? The skin barrier needs to be applied to dry skin. And when you fit the appliance around the stoma, the opening should be only one-eighth of an inch larger than the stoma. Again, you want it as close as possible to the stoma because you want to avoid excoriation. All right, there are different types of colostomies. And this is an NCLEX question. There are different types of colostomies. There's the single barrel, okay, and there's the double barrel. The single barrel means only one, there's only one stoma. And so that single barrel means that the distal portion of the bowel has been removed. So remember we said the ileostomy, right? With the ileostomy, you remove the colon and the rectum. So the distal portion from the ileum down has been removed. This is permanent. You cannot go back on this one. Okay, you cannot revise this one. This is a permanent thing. Now a double barrel, a double barrel means you've got two loops. You've got two stomas. Okay, this may or may not be permanent. Your nursing intervention and your nursing responsibility is to find out from the surgeon which one is the distal portion and which one is the proximal portion because the distal loop is the one that you're going to be irrigating. Okay, the distal loop you need to irrigate, particularly if it's not permanent. Now remember, the proximal loop is, out, is where all the stool is going to come out. So you need to keep that portion from distal onwards as patent as you can, so you need to irrigate that section. You don't want it to close up on you. So that's your nursing responsibility. You also want to tell your patients to avoid all this gas-forming and high-residue foods and nuts and food with the skin. All right, is that clear about the single barrel and double barrel? Double barrel may or may not be permanent. You need to irrigate the distal loop. So you've got to have the, the surgeon needs to tell you. It, it's usually documented in his notes and it usually comes back up from the OR. And a lot of times it's actually labeled on the patient, distal loop. Okay? And so you irrigate the distal loop because you need to keep it patent. All right. Hyperalimentation or total parenteral nutrition. Hyperal is given primarily to rest the GI tract. It's given in any instance where we have to rest the GI tract, and it is a temporary measure. It is not a permanent measure. Okay, any patient that's on TPN, your nursing responsibility is when you get that bag of TPN up from the pharmacy, you take that bag, the labels on it, with all the ingredients in it, you take that bag, you take the doctor's order, and you compare. Because you need to check and make sure that everything that the doctor ordered is exactly what's in the bag. It's your job. I mean, I know we say, oh, well, shouldn't pharmacy check it? Absolutely, pharmacy should check it. But remember, you're the one hanging it. Okay, so if you hang the solution that's wrong and something untoward happens to the patient, it's your neck. 
So you need to check it. It's like with anything. I mean, if you're checking um, an antibiotic that's a med before giving it, right? Don't you check and see what it is to make sure? Okay. You also want to check the rate of infusion. Say the doctor, for example, uh, has written that he wants it at 100 cc's an hour. And then the bag, it says 75. Well, gee, you got a discrepancy here. So what you need to do is verify. And who do you verify it with? You verify it with the doctor, not the pharmacy. Go straight to the horse's mouth. Excuse me, Dr. Smith, did you still want it running at 100 cc's an hour? Or was there a change because the pharmacy bag says 75 and I didn't know maybe you changed it? Okay, so go straight to the horse's mouth and verify that infusion rate. It needs to, this is something that you just cannot mess with. You absolutely cannot mess with. You must infuse it at the rate the doctor ordered. Okay, a TPN. I know people think you can only give TPN through a central line. That is not true. You can give TPN through a peripheral line, but only on a short-term basis, and it must be a large bore needle. You cannot give TPN through a 24 gauge, okay? Not even a 20. You really want an 18 gauge. So TPN can be given peripherally, but it must be a large bore needle, okay? Only on a short-term basis, no more than 10 days. No more than 10 days. After 10 days, you put the central line in. The doctor needs to put a central line in. If he wants to continue with the TPN, he need, that person needs a central line. It's your job, once a central line is in, to ensure that the patency of that central line is, remains. Okay, so you've got to now continuously check it. You've also got to check the site of insertion, whether it's peripheral IV or central IV. You need to check the site for any signs and symptoms of infection or maybe thrombophlebitis or infiltration. Remember that your TPN, the base fluid on your TPN is usually something like D25. Okay, so that's a pretty high concentration of, of dextrose. You know the IV bags that we generally utilize is D5, isn't it? The base of a TPN is generally about D25, so that's a pretty high concentration of glucose. The other thing that you will find in a TPN bag is insulin. The doctor will actually order some insulin to be put in. So you're going to have D25 and plus insulin. So your job is to watch and monitor the person for any signs and symptoms of hyper or hypoglycemia. And what does that mean? It means that anyone who's on a TPN hyperalimentation drip needs to get AccuCheck every two hours until that glucose is stabilized. Okay, and that's the ideal world of NCLEX. And I'm going to tell you that as a nurse working in the, in the hospital, if I got someone on TPN, I'd be doing AccuCheck on him. I don't care if the doctor ordered it or not. Of course, I would be calling the doctor, okay, to say, um, did you, how frequently would you like me to perform AccuCheck? See, this is called a Jedi mind trick. You don't say, do you want? You say, how frequently do you want me to? So now he has to tell you that, yes, you want to. You know, he, he can't say, no, I don't want you to. You understand? It's just the way you phrase it. How often would you like me to do this? Giving him the assumption, because he doesn't remember whether he ordered it or not. So, you know, <laughs> helping him along, as it were. But with the TPN drip, 
you need to monitor for signs and symptoms of hyper and hypoglycemia. So AccuCheck's Q2 until he's stable. And as you guys get older in your nursing um, careers, you'll understand, you'll find different ways to deal with different doctors. It's really quite a challenge. All right, your nursing interventions with TPNs. The tubing gets changed every 24 hours. That IV flow rate must be maintained as the doctor ordered it. So if he ordered it at 100, it stays at 100. Okay, if he ordered it at 75, it stays at 75, come hell or high water. So here's the thing. Here's an NCLEX question. You all ready? You come into a patient's room, and this patient's on TPN. Okay. You just got report at, six, at 7 o'clock in the morning that the nurse before you had just hung a TPN bag at 6. Okay. And the rate was 100 cc's an hour. Where you go in at 7.30, and, you re, and you, so at 100 cc's an hour, you should have received 150, right, by 7.30? Well, you go in and you find out, my gosh, he's only received 50. So what do you do? And here are the choices that they give you. Speed it up and play catch up. Okay. Um, bolus him. That's another one. I like that one. Bolus him, you know, to make sure that you catch up. Okay. Do nothing. Okay, check for kinks. You check for kinks. Check for kinks or any obstruction. But bottom line, you don't play catch-up, you don't play bolus, you don't speed it up, you don't slow it down. Okay, if it says 75, you leave it at 75. And even if he didn't get the, the, the 75 or the 50 or whatever it is that the doctor ordered, you don't play catch-up. What you do is check for kinks, call the doctor and say, hey, this is what happened. Let the doctor know this is what happened. Because the last thing that you want is for some doctor to come in and say, hey, wait, what happened here? So now you've let him know and you document that you let him know. All right? You don't play catch up. An IV rate needs to be exactly the way the doctor ordered it. Strict I's and O's, daily weights, when you are Making that dressing change that we talked about, the tubing change, that is a sterile technique. Now, if you are watching, um, if you are changing the dressing, the sterile dressing on a central line, and all of a sudden the patient goes into respiratory distress, okay, the chances are he might have gotten an air embolus. If that happens, now remember respiratory distress, what do we want to do? We want to sit him up, right? Because he's in respiratory distress. Don't sit him up. Don't sit him up in this instance. In this instance, you're going to put him in Trendelenburg on his left side. Okay, because he has an air embolus. And where do you want the air to stay? You want it to stay in the lungs. If you sit him up, it's going to go to the head and cause another problem here, like a possible CVA. So you don't want to do that. And if you think an air embolus, a little bubble of air can't do, make a problem, I can tell you about a particular patient years ago in Florida. She was having these little Botoxy things, you know, she, what she would do, uh, uh, you know, all this plastic surgery stuff. And one of the things that she did was she, she got liposuction from around her stomach, okay, and then she, they took the fat from here and injected into the, um, into the forehead to get rid of all the, the lines. And in doing so, she got a tiny little bleep of air, and it went retrograde into her brain, and she stroked. Yeah. 
Because when they checked to see if maybe it was a fat embolus, it wasn't. It was a, bleep, a teeny little bleep of air. So that can happen. Be very careful, okay? So with this case, trend down both left side because you want the air to stay in the lungs. Do, if you have to hang, um, TPN is a wonderful thing because it has all the amino acids and everything that you need. That's why it's total parenteral nutrition. It has everything that you need except for the essential fatty acids that you need. That's why we hang fat emulsions. If you have to hang fat emulsions, or rather when you hang fat emulsions, remember that fatty, that bag has to be higher, the bag of fat emulsions has to be higher than your TPN bag. Right? You remember that. Okay. Appendicitis. Appendicitis is an inflammation of the appendix, we know that. And it's usually, the pain is where? Right lower quadrant. You may have some nausea and vomiting and, and uh, 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 associated with that. You'll have a temp associated with that. Your white cell count will be elevated. And I'm not talking wimpy elevation like 12,000. I'm talking elevation like 25, 26, very high. Okay. Um, what you've got to do is prepare the person for the OR because he's probably going to go to the OR. Yes? Immediately he's NPO if you suspect that he may have appendicitis, NPO. You may have to put an NG tube in, okay, especially if he's got nausea and vomiting. Um, and you're going to watch for signs and symptoms of peritonitis because if that appendix ruptures, then what happens is that the stool gets into the peritoneum and it causes peritonitis, which is potentially lethal. Um, you want, and the signs and symptoms of, of peritonitis include board-like abdominal pain. Okay, the ab abdomen is rigid and like a hard, like a board. Okay, so th those are the two major signs of um, appendicitis. <clears throat> okay, intestinal obstructions. Well, it can be partial or it can be complete. Now, hernias, intersusception, and volvulus can, can cause intestinal obstruction. Now, I had a patient when I was first graduated from nursing school who was brought in of, because of abdominal pain. I was working night shift at the time. It was me, brand new nurse, and a doctor who was a first year intern. Was that a combination? I'm surprised anybody survived. You know, two rookies. Imagine that. This person comes in and she had severe abdominal pain and throughout the night what would happen is that she would sleep and then she would come out of her sleep and start screaming. Okay? Now, the report that we got from the ER was that she was a frequent flyer in the ER and that she would had multiple complaints and she was psychotic. That's the report that I got. So I'm thinking, well, she's a whack case, all right? So I'm waking the doctor up six times that night and I'm saying, we need, so we gave her Haldol, we gave her Ativan, we gave her everything under the sun. And she was still, she would just sleep and then we ah! she'd wake up and be screaming. Well, the next morning, because remember now, first you interned and me, okay, graduate nurse, ooh, what a darn combination. 
The next morning doing grand rounds and we're going around with the attending physician and all the other interns and the re residents and the fellows and everything like that. And we get, you know, and, and this doctor, I won't mention his name, but he's my buddy. He's giving report and you know, he's giving report on this particular patient. We're standing outside the patient's room because it's rounds now. And uh, he's, he's giving report and I could see the attending's face. And his face, he is... His heritage was the Middle East. He was Arabic, so he had a lovely brown color to his skin. Okay, let me tell you something. He turned white, <laughs> if it's at all possible. He turned absolutely white. He said, prep her for the OR now. We're looking and saying, why? <laughs> you know? I mean, could we give her something stronger than Haldol, please? You know, that's what we were thinking. This woman had a small bowel obstruction. This guy, obviously because of the so many years of training that he had, okay, he spotted it immediately. He didn't even have to lay a finger on her, and he spotted it immediately. She had a small bowel obstruction. The pain is excruciating. It comes in spasms and waves like that. We took her to the OR. She had surgery. Unfortunately, she died. Yeah, she died. But, I mean, I will never forget that now. See, I will always remember the incredible pain. It's a wave of pain. Okay? Oh, there was something, one other thing I forgot to tell you. During one of my assessments of her, I was looking at her stomach, and I saw something moving in her stomach, just like a wave. And I thought, what the heck is that? She got bugs and parasites in there. <laughs> it was moving. I had no idea what it was. You know? And I told my friend, the first year intern, and he went, I don't know. Neither one of us knew. <laughs> the attending knew it was reverse peristalsis. And that was almost a definitive sign for him that this was a small bowel obstruction. You will see reverse peristalsis, this wave-like thing happening. So I will never forget that. Reverse peristalsis. Severe constipation, vomiting fecal contents, and abdominal distension. In fact, this was, impressed me so very much, impressed me so very much that about a year and a half ago, a woman was brought into the ER, and she had severe abdominal pain. She was screaming just like this woman was. I saw the reverse peristalsis, and once I saw that reverse peristalsis, I, I said, open your mouth. Okay, when she opened her mouth, there was black in her mouth. And you didn't want to smell her breath because it smelled like fecal contents. And that black that was in her mouth, that was stool. When I put an NG tube down her, I got 500 cc's worth of black liquid stool. It was in her stomach. Because there's an obstruction. Can't go anywhere, right? Cannot go anywhere. Can't go down. Got to back up. So abdominal distension, reverse peristalsis, she will vomit fecal contents, okay? You'll see, you'll absolutely see the, the stool in her breath. She will have severe halitosis, severe bad breath. And if you get the chance to auscultate her abdomen, you'll find that she will have bowel sounds that are very high-pitched above the obstruction, and below the obstruction, it'll be absent, or very, very diminished. Your nursing interventions. I told you what I did was what? 
put in an NG tube right away. Okay, for me, all I wanted to do is decompress the stomach, so I just put in a Salem sump. But generally what we do is we put in a longer tube that goes into the intestines, so a Miller Abbott or a Cantor tube. When you're putting in an NG tube, do you remember how to measure? And this is an NCLEX question from the nose to the ears to the sternum. Okay, you need to remember this. Don't do this way. Yeah, there's an NCLEX question that, that one of the choices in the answer is earlobe, nose to sternum, and you have no idea how many people pick that. You know why? Oh, we got all the three components there. We got all three parts there. It has to be nose to ear to sternum, not ear to nose to sternum, okay? So read it carefully because the ear to nose to sternum comes before, in your answer choices, it comes before the correct one, which is nose to ear. So don't jump and pick the wrong one just because it's got all three components. Okay, so slow down, all right? When you're inserting a Miller-Abbott or a Cantor tube, that's the one that has that little, metal, a little uh, weight at the end, or the mercury weight or something. Okay. When you insert a regular NG tube, like a Salem sump, you insert it, you've, you've checked placement, and then you tape, right? You tape it to the nose so that it doesn't move anywhere. When you're inserting a longer tube, like an intestinal tube, you do the same thing. You measure nose to ear to mid-sternum, yes? You insert it to the point, but you do not secure it. You do not secure it because what happens is that weight that's at the bottom of it will advance the tube until it's in place in the intestine. Once the position has been confirmed by x-ray, then you can secure the tube. All right? So Salem sump, regular NG tube, no problem. Insert. You, you put it in, you check placement with either the bolus of air or whatever, you tape it in place immediately. With a longer tube like a Miller-Abbott or a Cantor tube where you actually have to end up going into the intestine, you measure, you insert it to the abdomen and then you do not secure it. You let it advance. Placement in the intestine will be confirmed by, ex, uh, by an x-ray and then you can secure it. All right? When you are taking it out, when you take out a Salem sump, what do you do? Tell them, take a deep breath, and you pull, right? One nice, swift move. With the uh, intestinal tube, you cannot do that. You have to pull back about two inches every 10 minutes. Just pull back a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, until it's in place in the abdomen. And then you can yank it out in one fell swoop. Anytime you have an NG tube in for an intestinal obstruction, you're going to be measuring abdominal girth. You're going to be watching, watching for any complications. And remember, surgery very well may be in the, in the cards. Okay. When you put in an NG tube, what do you put it in for? You can put it in for decompression, or you can put it in for feeding. Right. Let's cover very quickly, I won't go in great depth on hepatitis because I actually cover this in better and greater depth with, um, with obstetrics on tomorrow. Okay, so we'll cover it very, very quickly. I just want you to know that a long, long time ago we used to have hepatitis A, hepatitis B, and non-A, non-B, right? Three types. Well, guess what we have now? We've got A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Yeah. And you know, I didn't, you didn't know about the others, right? But 
fortunately, fortunately, what NCLEX wants to question you on is essentially A and B, C and D, okay? You need to know your anatomy and physiology. You need to know what the liver produces and the job of the liver. Yes. So if you don't know the job of the liver, then go back home, pick up your anatomy book and your physiology book and study. We're going to cover very quickly hepatitis A, B, and C, cirrhosis, ascites, and esophageal varices. Okay? We're also going to cover very quickly cholelithiasis and pancreatitis. You know that with the liver biopsy, that is the definitive test for what? To rule out cancer. Anytime a patient is having a liver biopsy, remember the liver is a very vascular organ. What does that mean? It means it's got lots of blood vessels. That means it bleeds very easily. The liver also produces albumin. It also produces platelets, correct? It is the area where, you, where all the junk that you put in your body gets detoxified. So your medications, all the medications that you take into your body goes through what we call a first pass effect. It goes through the liver. And it, the first pass is the detoxification pass that goes through the liver. So your liver works very, very hard. So let's be uh, uh, respectful of it, <laughs> okay? <laughs> All right. Your patient's going to have a liver biopsy. Preoperatively, you've got to make sure that a consent's been signed. Preoperatively, you're going to do basic lab work. Remember I told you the liver produces coagulation factors. So you're going to draw blood work, PT, PTT, coag factors, right? You're going to do that clotting screen beforehand. You're also going to do what? You're also going to do liver functions because you want to make sure the liver is working all right. Tell him that it's, he does not have to go to the OR for this. It can be done in his room. And essentially what he's going to be doing is he's going to be laying. Now, different doctors have different ways of doing this. Okay, most doctors will tell him you want some supine, which means on his back, and his right quadrant will be exposed. What's going to happen is that you tell the patient he has to hold his breath when the doctor goes in with the needle. So he doesn't want him breathing because why, when you breathe, the liver is right up against the diaphragm, so every time he breathes, okay, that liver moves as well. So no, tell him to hold his breath, all right? Postoperatively, he is going to be laying on his right side. And you tell him this before he goes in, before the, the biopsy is done. He will be laying on his right side. Why? Because we want to put the pressure, all right? And he's going to be doing that for, oh, about six to eight hours. Yeah, nice healthy period of time. You want to watch very carefully for any possible oopsies. I love these oopsies. Okay, and the oopsies include puncture of the bile duct. Maybe we, can, we gave him a pneumothorax. Remember, the diaphragm's right there. So maybe we give him a pneumothorax, okay? Peritonitis, we want to watch for all those wonderful things. Now, we've got, like I said, hepatitis A, B, and C. With all the forms of hepatitis, you need to know that you want to rest the liver. You need to know that you want to give him a high-protein diet. Why? Because the liver makes albumin, and albumin is, the is protein. So you want to give him a high-protein diet. Okay? Rest the liver. If he drinks, he needs to stop. If he does not, if he does not stop, it can lead to a condition known as cirrhosis. And we all know what cirrhosis is. It's a direct result of the three martini lunch. It's not a pretty picture. This is a person with cirrhosis. I wish I had permission to show you the real pictures of a young lady who had cirrhosis.
and there was only a nine-year difference between the first picture and the second picture. The first picture, she was 29 years old, and she probably could have passed for 16. She was just as pretty as a picture. Nine years later, she's 37 years old, and she probably could have passed for 70. That is how old she looked in the nine years. Cirrhosis is not a pretty picture at all. Your liver fails. You turn a gorgeous, gorgeous color, shade of orange, just like that shirt. Right behind you, your shirt. Hey, hold it up. Yeah, that nice color. Your liver cells necrose and they're, and they're destroyed. And they're replaced essentially by scar tissue. Okay. There, there's several types of cirrhosis. There's lanic cirrhosis, which is alcohol. There's post-necrotic, there's biliary, there's cardiac cirrhosis. Well, you don't need to know what each one, you know, you need to know that the different kinds of cirrhosis, but essentially the signs and symptoms are the same for all four. Isn't that nice? Did that make your life a little bit easier? Okay. Early signs and symptoms include fatigue, anorexia, dyspepsia. Well, dyspepsia is what? Like indigestion? Have you ever smelt the burp of a person who's had early onset cirrhosis? It's a sourish, almost diabetic ketoacidosis kind of a smell. Yeah, that's, that's how it smells. Lots of flatus. They, yes, and that even the flatus smells the same way as the, the burp. That soury kind of a smell. Lots of nausea and vomiting and diarrhea, or they may be constipated on the other hand. Okay, a dull abdominal ache. And so because they got the ache, guess what they do? drink some more because they say that the alcohol kills the pain. So this is my lady who's in complete denial, but I don't have cirrhosis. <laughs> complete denial. Fatigue and mental changes occur. Asterixis, which is the liver flap. And what's that? If you tell them to hold their hands out, the hand will, arms out, the hands will actually flap like this. That's the asterixis. The other thing also is if you tell them to do the hands up thing, stick them up, right? Put your hands up like this. Like when you play cowboys and Indians, you go, stick them up. And they put their hands up like in the stop position, the hands will flap also. Okay, so that's, that's asterixis. And so her hands are flapping, but she's in total denial. Hepatomegaly can occur and ascites can occur. And what happens if there is ascites? What is your nursing responsibility? Measure the abdomen, right? And so when you measure the abdomen, you do what? You draw on the stomach with your magic marker. Jaundice, that gorgeous color. Spider angiomas. And you know what spider angiomas are? Those ruptured capillaries. And if you look, some people have them on the face, some people have them on the chest, where you can actually look, you can see the center is bright, is red, it's a red spot. And then the ruptured capillaries emanate out from it so it looks like a spider. So these little spider angiomas can be all over the face or can be over the, the chest. And sometimes it's all over the, it can be in other parts of the body as well. You definitely have coagulation problems. So these people now suddenly start they start with what? Rectal bleeding. And that's what brings them in. It's the rectal bleed. The jaundice may not bring them in. <laughs> but the rectal bleed will. Okay, coagulation problems occur. Portal hypertension occurs, which means there's, there's uh, blood pressure increases right in the liver area. Esophageal varices can occur. 
and esophageal varices, essentially varicosities of the, the veins right in the esophagus. So the walls are weakened now. Okay, my very first patient, when I first went to the ER, had esophageal varices. And you know the very first patient, then you go home and you go, I don't want to be a nurse anymore. Okay, my very first patient, I hear, I'm given this area in the ER, I'm so excited because I've always wanted to be an ER nurse. So I just, I went from, you know, student nurse to nurse on the floor to ICU, and now I finally got my goal. I am now in the ER. I am an ER nurse. I am a real nurse now. My very first patient that they gave, yes, <laughs> my very first patient, they said to me, you know, this is a frequent flyer, and she's an alcoholic. You know, she drinks a lot, okay? Came in. I walked into the room to take care of her. Her esophageal varices ruptured. And you talk about Mount Vesuvius, blood right out of her mouth, on the walls, on the ceilings, on the floor, on the stretcher, on me, everywhere. There was blood. I was covered in blood from head to toe. Okay, esophageal varices ruptured. This is when I go, I was just kidding. I really don't want to be a nurse. <laughs> so it's not a pretty picture. It's a dangerous situation. If you have a patient with esophageal varices, you're going to be doing something very special. You're going to be inserting a tube known as a Sengstock and Blakemore tube. Okay. This Sengstock and Blakemore tube essentially has a balloon in certain areas, and what you do is you drop it to the area where there is the varices, you inflate the balloon, and it causes pressure okay, on that site to stop the bleeding. The other thing that you can do with the Sengstock and Blakemore is you can dump iced saline down into the stomach to stop whatever bleeds also, all right? The problem is that, of course, you're dumping this ice stuff and you're, is, you're inflating this, this esophagus, you may cause the person to go into shock. So you've got to watch for signs and symptoms of shock and hypothermia. And should signs and symptoms of shock occur, you've got to have always a scissors at the bedside because if the signs and symptoms of shock occur, you are going to just cut the tube. You don't worry about deflating the balloon. You just cut the tube right away. That will automatically deflate the balloon and then you remove the Singstock and Blakemore. That's an NCLEX question. The NCLEX question has to do with the presence. You know, you're taking care of a patient with a Singstock and Blakemore. Okay, what should you have at bedside? The answer is a pair of scissors. Please move to the next section of the lecture series. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and leave a rating. We wish you all the best in the coming examination. See you next time.